Welcome to Challenging Climate, a podcast where we discuss the science, technology, and politics of climate change. I'm Pete Irvin, a climate scientist. And I'm Jesse Reynolds, an environmental policy expert. Each episode, we bring on a guest with a unique perspective and deep expertise on climate change and put challenging questions to them. In this episode, we spoke with Zeon Lights, author, climate activist, and former spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, who left the, that group to start nuclear energy advocacy organization, Emergency Reactor. And in this episode, we talked to Zeon about her history, her background, and her transition from climate activist to someone focused on nuclear energy. I find Zeon to be quite interesting in her trajectory of public advocacy and, and activism over the last couple of years. Like many climate change activists, she was opposed to nuclear power on the typical grounds. And you can clearly see in her public appearances in particular, she appeared on Andrew Neal, where you can see the cognitive dissonance playing out in her mind in real time. And after that, she embraced the potential of nuclear power to help reduce emissions. And I think that that puts her in an interesting place among young activists for climate action. I think it's often it seems beliefs come packaged together. And it's interesting that getting rid of nuclear energy is often packed together with we really need to fight climate change and it's critically important. And yet they do run quite counter to each other. Because the more we pull back from nuclear, the harder it will be to deal with climate change. And as Zeon says, there's some good arguments for ramping up nuclear, which we discuss, and push back against. She has an interesting background, interesting story, and the debate around nuclear energy's role in the climate change is an important one. And now for a conversation with Zeon Lights. We welcome to Challenging Climate, Zeon Light, author, climate activist, nuclear energy advocate, founder of Emergency Reactor. Thank you for coming on our show, Zeon. Thanks for having me. I'd like to begin with talking a little bit about you and how you got to where you're at. Tell us a little bit about your background, what your formative years were like, and how that created a path towards you becoming involved in environmental and climate issues? So I cared about climate issues when I was quite young, as soon as I learned about global warming, as we call, called it then at school. And I was trying to do things at home, but I was daughter of an immigrant, immigrant family, not very much awareness of green issues there. So it wasn't until university when I left and I joined a group of similar-minded people, although they had very different backgrounds to me, and we set up the first green group, one on that campus anyway. And, the, and we did lots of activism, especially for renewables on campus, off campus. We went, And then straight after that, I got involved with another climate group, which did nonviolent civil disobedience. We did lots of different actions, but there was one year where we shut down banks that were investing in tar sands. I was arrested for that. And then there was another year where we went and shut down a coal-fired power station I mean, we're talking, you know, 15 years ago. Since then, I've just done many, many different things with many different groups. I authored a book on how to live with a low carbon footprint. And then a couple of years ago, I was asked to be spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, which was founded here in the UK. 
And I said, yes, seemed like a good opportunity to finally talk about climate change and be taken seriously. And I did that for a little while. And now I founded my own group of where I've landed at, where I think I'm probably doing the most productive thing that I've ever done as a climate activist now. What was the spark to get you involved in environmental and climate issues? You said you were interested from a very early age. What was the hook for you? You know, it's funny because people assume it's because I grew up around nature and wanted to protect it. But actually, I grew up in inner city Birmingham in a very deprived area, went to a very poor school. There were no trees on our street. You were lucky if you had access to a garden. And, you know, I didn't have great mental health. And I just have really good memories of going to the park with my dad and literally hugging trees like being a kid and feeling like I've been missing something and realizing that hey we need more of this and getting my you know my dad planted a apple tree in the garden I used to go out and talk to it and everyone thought I was weird but actually um you know we now have this recognition that these trees are really important is there's even there's less crime and less depression on trees streets that have less have more trees that was kind of my entry point, which was, whoa, I know what it's like to live without this. It's really sad and depressing. Maybe lots of people don't realize and I should do something about it. I saw in your bio that you became a parent some years ago and you wrote a book on green parenting. And I'm curious whether becoming a parent changed your outlook on environmental issues. The first thing I found when I became a parent was I wanted to find out what the best ways of doing things were. What's the best way to feed your child? What's the best way to get around? You know, what's the best way for the environment and the child? And all of the books in that green parenting, you know, hippie movement are so full of pseudoscience. They're anti-vaccination. They're very anti-science. And it was that point that I realized I kind of didn't fit in in this movement that I'd been really core part of for a long time. So I deliberately, when I received this offer to have this book published, I said, I want to have a chapter in there on vaccines, because actually, people should understand why we need them. I know it's a social issue. But for me, social justice issues are part of environmentalism, you can't separate people from nature. And I think environmentalism has made this mistake in the past. So they said, yeah, sure, you go ahead and, and write it. And then I did. And the absolute backlash I got for that was just, you know, I was getting hate mail. And First of all, I knew I was doing the right thing because I think when you get that reaction, it's confirmation of that. No one else has this voice out there. And secondly, it made me think that actually there were more broad issues in that movement that needed discussing that people were not discussing because you'd get shut down very quickly if you did that, which is you know kind of what happened to me. You know, I was cancelled from events I was going to speak at. Uh, I had editors telling me they'd never work with me again because I'd written about vaccines in a positive way. And I just was saying to people, that chapter represents scientific consensus, same as every chapter in the book. You know, you can't really pick and choose. And that's now what I'm saying today, right, about nuclear energy. It's not different. What I really realized was that the most useful thing I could do in the green movement was to promote science. And that's also the most important thing that I could do for my kids. How's the chronology of that book about parenting and becoming a parent relate to Extinction Rebellion? The book came out in 2016. Extinction Rebellion contacted me in 2018. It was in the autumn that that group was founded around the same time as Fridays for the Future. And it was all on the back of the latest IPCC report at the time. So if anyone doesn't know, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, rigorous scientific body made up of hundreds of top scientists around the world. And they published this 1.5 warming report. And for all of us, it was a huge wake up call. 
this report was just galvanized many of us to act. And I'd stepped back from activism. I'd sort of done my book. I'd had that backlash. And so when I, I was offered this opportunity, you know, they, they literally just said, we've seen your work. Will you come and be a spokesperson? I thought, well, maybe it's time to get back out there. And, and actually, people really care about climate change now. So maybe we should kind of use that. Whereas 15 years ago, when I was in the other group doing civil disobedience actions, we were really hated. I mean, I know you probably say a lot of people don't like Extinction Rebellion now, but a lot of people also understand what they're doing, whereas back then people didn't. So that's shifted and that's really positive. And I was glad to get involved at that point. But you're still advocating for climate action and your position has has evolved somewhat. What can you say about the transition during and after Extinction Rebellion? What motivated that transition? So something I always said in Extinction Rebellion is that I don't think there's anything special about Extinction Rebellion. I think it was the timing. And I think the group that I was in 15 years ago was just before its time, but it was doing a very similar thing. They both had different demands. But if you look at them closely, the environmental movement has always made the same demands, which is live with less, systems the problem, change politics. And it used to be my line because it was the acceptable line. And that's what we all just went along with. But I've had a long time to think about it. And I've done, it's not my line anymore. Even in Extinction Rebellion, I did kind of feel that because I'd say to them, look, the demands don't really reflect where we need to be at with climate action. Like, I just think they're still a bit vague. And I don't think we should just be focusing on telling people to live with less. We've been saying the same thing for decades. And at some point, we just have to take a step back and say, this isn't working. And we are running out of time. We have to think of different tactics, different messaging to actually achieve real outcomes. So, you know, one of the biggest demand really is the system change. It's about a different kind of politics. And I'm not saying I disagree with that. That doesn't, to me, link directly with climate action. I don't think we even have time to like completely revamp our political system and then deal with climate change. We need to deal with climate change right now. And if we look at what that really means, it means addressing emissions. And we all know we need to keep coal in the ground. and we, we all know we need to build more clean energy. But that's where the solutions have come to differ. So like with the anti-vax movement, it sits within the green movement quite neatly. But there's also the anti-nuclear movement. And that's where there's conflict for me, because again, it's going against the scientific consensus. And I realized that actually we need environmentalists to stand up for that specific element, because if we don't promote nuclear energy, then we are stuck with fossil fuels forever. And we've been against both for a long time. And it's come to the point where we need to make a choice. We need one or the other. We can have renewables. We can have as much as renewables as we like. It's got to the point now where we need to acknowledge that there is another solution on the table. We're lucky that we have another solution. People might not like it, but we've got to put science before ideology. Why is it harder to meet our climate goals if we take nuclear energy off the table? We cannot meet our climate goals if we take nuclear off the table. It's been shown in report after report. And as I said earlier about the 1.5 warming report, that same report has an, a section on energy. Again, same scientists, same level of scientific consensus as the fact that climate change is human driven. And it shows four pathways for decarbonization to get us off of fossil fuels. And all four ways include nuclear energy. So there's different ways they've modeled it, but it cannot be done without a combination of renewables and nuclear and also some carbon capture storage, because we also need to reduce what we've already put in the atmosphere. There's regions around the world where they've seen big falls in their emissions 
big growth in variable renewables, and at the same time, nuclear power has has shrunk. Why can't that continue? Why can't they keep pushing emissions down while not growing nuclear power? Often, if you look closely, you see that the more renewables you use, the more fossil fuels you're dependent on. So unless you have a baseload capacity of nuclear, which some of these places might already have, like Britain has about 20%, then that gap will be filled with fossil fuels. So in Britain, you can check every day, well, anywhere in the world, you can check every day what the electricity grid is. So you can go to electricitymap.org and it will tell you for the day. Nuclear is usually steady around 17, 18%. And then you've got wind and solar. And those are great when they're at high capacity. When it's not windy or sunny, you see them drop and you see the coal rise. And you'll often see in the news people celebrating, we've been this many days without coal. That's great. But it's not actually getting us away from coal. And I always think this is a really uh, immoral thing to do as well, because when you're using coal, we would never, ever allow a coal-fired power station to be built here, right? We know that they make people really sick. The air pollution is horrendous. But we import coal from poorer countries most days. And that is because it is a backup source because we don't have enough nuclear to actually fill that gap. Some countries might find it easier. Maybe California is going to have a lot more sun than Britain, isn't it? And there's definitely some countries that have a lot of hydropower and they've completely decarbonized. But we can't have as much as them. So we have to use what we've got. Uh, Offshore wind is quite a good option, which we are investing in. But you still have to be careful about the backup because if we don't replace that baseload power then we will just stay on fossil fuels forever. It's just too easy to import them from poorer countries where they live with the cost of what we're doing, right? And we just carry on living our high energy lifestyles and we don't really care because we would prefer ideology of of our preferred energy source. And I just keep saying to people, it's not about preferences, but it's about science and scientific consensus of what the data is showing us. You can't ignore the data from the same scientists that have drawn our attention to climate change. That reminds me of the fact that carbon dioxide removal is also part of the scenarios of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which would keep global warming within targets. Yet that's not a widely known fact. I know that, again, a lot of environmentalists don't like it because it's a technology, but we are going to need it. Again, the consensus is even if we stopped emissions overnight, what we've already put into the atmosphere is going to have a toll. So we have to also develop that tech. I don't quite like the idea, but then I'm kind of thinking, you know, it's like with geoengineering where people say we shouldn't mess with the clouds or the atmosphere. Well, we already did that. I mean, there are people who argue for renewable only grids. And I, and I think the vision they have, say, for Europe is, you know, while you know it might not be windy in Britain today, Portugal is quite far away. And so the weather is going to be quite different there. They, they envision the use of batteries for short-term storage and then long-scale interconnections between Portugal and Britain, between Britain and Norway and, and on. Do these not offer a, a solution to this problem? It's not realistic, no. That's the short answer. Longer answer is, first of all, you're talking about huge grid infrastructure changes that would require all these countries working together. Is that going to happen? Probably not replacing all the existing infrastructure for something that we are hoping will work. I mean, I'm pretty sure if we knew it would work, that the IPCC scientists would be saying this is the best way to decarbonize, but they're not giving that as an option because it isn't actually the best way. But also, I have looked at this data very carefully. I used to be on the other side, so I started looking into it. It was really the IPCC that swayed me, but I looked at other reports 
like, you know, the Center for Alternative Technology has a report that shows us how we can run on just 100% renewables. And I also looked at the Green Party report on 100% renewables. And I remember going to an energy conference with the Green Party back when I was a member and putting my hand up and saying, this report looks great, but it says at the top, power Britain with 100% renewables, and there's an asterisk. And at the bottom, the asterisk said, this is dependent on a 60% reduction of energy. My question was to the leaders, and I just asked a genuine question, and they said they'll just have to be made to. I don't think that that's right. I don't think we can have this kind of authoritarian rule. I understand some people think it's necessary, but I don't think that forcing people to live with less is right. I also think that the people who are the poorest, who are the hardest hit by climate change in all communities around the world, who can't afford solar panels and electric vehicles and heat pumps and all of the rest are the ones that are going to end up paying the price. Let's be honest again, 60% reduction is a huge number. The only way to do it, it relies on a huge reduction in personal energy use. So we're talking about using lighting less. We're talking about using washing machines less. These are essential things that people need. It's assumed that, hey, we're all really wasteful and we use lots of energy and we're terrible. We need energy. That's just life. That's having a high quality of life so that you can go to the hospital and the lights are on, you know, and they, you don't have blackouts so that you can open your fridge and the food is cold and it's safe to eat because it's kept at a certain temperature. But also those reports, and especially the CAT report, it calls for other countries to have that reduction in energy. And they have not lived with the abundant energy that we've had. I don't think we have a right to tell India to use 40% less energy. And I'm not advocating for that. So nuclear power does seem to have some advantages as a you know stable power supply. But here, given that we're called challenging climate, I'd like to try and put to you some of the main objections to nuclear. So I'll start with the, maybe the gentler ones. Nuclear fuels, nuclear resources aren't unlimited either. Is there enough uranium to power the world on nuclear power or will we run out? This is a myth, actually, but there's enough to last us many, many, many generations, like centuries I can't remember the exact figure, but there is a paper out there on it. And, and on that basis, it was a scientist who was arguing that it should be classed as renewable, which I thought was an interesting topic. One of the big challenges today in terms of the development of nuclear is the economics. Private investment is struggling or is, isn't finding the logic sometimes in, in developing this. You know, there's a large upfront cost of nuclear. They take many years to build and they often overrun. So they can so that large debt that has to be serviced for many years before you start producing cheap power. And then you've got the risk of it being politically disrupted or shut down. And given that is in the context of the costs of renewables crashing and falling very rapidly, what's the business case for building nuclear today? 100%, I would say you've hit on the biggest issues, cost and build time. And these are things that could and should be improved. So some places have done it really well. They are building them at decent cost. Japan and Russia have been building them in only six years. You know, in Britain, it takes at least 15 years. And that is to do with the way that it is invested in and developed in the country. Because frankly, we don't even have the engineers, right, to build them because we don't have an industry. I mean, we, we hardly have an industry. Having the engineers to be able to work specifically on nuclear is really, really important because there was actually a really good study on this. It was just done looking at South Korea, where they found that a standardization model brought down the cost of each new reactor. And it was basically using the same engineers to build the same product again and again, because it's just quicker and it's just easier and they make less mistakes and everything's 
just runs more smoothly and it also brings the cost down because the investors are more likely to invest. I think the financing also definitely needs to change. We're actually doing that in Britain, which is interesting. They're just discussing a new financing model, which needs to go ahead. Previously, we were looking at borrowing money for China. I didn't think that was a good idea. Now, we're not doing that now. Look at what France did in the 60s and 70s. They built something like 58 reactors in 10 years. That's what it took them to decarbonize. Since then, they have had some of the lowest emissions in the world. They have about 70% nuclear and they've just committed to building new reactors. They have the expertise because they have the workers there. So it's much quicker and less costly to build them. And also countries in Europe have been having grid issues They've been importing nuclear from France. So their energy independence is also just really important as a country anyway. The other thing I would say is, you know, we're really good as activists constantly saying no cost is too high to address the climate emergency. So kind of thing, is cost that relevant? Do we want a habitable planet for our children or not? Or do we want all of the global south to basically suffer droughts and starvation and all of the things that are going to happen in the mass migration because that that's the option we in the west in the wealthy countries drove climate change through our high quality of life we don't get to now tell them that they suffer because of that and they don't get to develop either we should decarbonize so that countries like india and africa who want to burn coal they need to burn coal because it's super cheap super easy to set up the infrastructure's there They want to develop the same way we developed. And we're now telling them we don't want them to, which I understand. But we have no right when we're still burning coal. I guess the other more mainstream concern with nuclear is the potential for disaster. Chernobyl is the most famous. And then more recently, we had Fukushima. What are the prospects of another nuclear disaster in the next 30 years? And what do you think about that risk? They will happen, but the risk is minimal. Let's talk about Fukushima. Nobody died because of the nuclear meltdown at Fukushima. I used to believe this because of the the way it was reported with a lot of fear mongering around the meltdown. I used to think that it had harmed lots of people. But it's very easy to just look up that data right now and find that no one was harmed by the meltdown. One person who lived near the site claimed that his cancer was due to Fukushima. And there's research on this which said that it's likely that he would have had that cancer anyway. Thousands of people died because there was a tsunami and an earthquake. And also there was a meltdown, but that didn't harm anyone. They evacuated the area in case. The most interesting thing that I find about Fukushima is that they had waste stored on site. And the waste was hit by a tsunami and an earthquake and it wasn't damaged at all, didn't harm anyone. So to me, it seems like the ultimate test because in the worst case scenario, it still didn't harm anyone. Chernobyl is a different circumstance. Chernobyl was unfortunate. They used an RMBK reactor, which they don't use anymore. These are known to have safety issues. It also, it was the Soviet Union. They didn't tell people that it had happened for weeks, so they were exposed instead of evacuated. But actually, even then, if you look at the death toll, it's minor compared to the deaths from fossil fuels. And that's what we have to remember. There's a really good um, graph on this. You can go to Our World and Data, which I always recommend to people. It's Oxford University data, a website, really, really good free information, really good, lots of infographics. And they've got a really good explainer on all of this. But if you look specifically at the costs of energy, so all energy has a cost. People die fitting solar panels, people die erecting wind turbines, everything has a cost. And actually, if you look at this chart, you'll see 
nuclear, wind and solar at the bottom in the bottom three, like quite similar numbers of deaths. That's across every incident that's ever happened in those industries. And then at the top, you've got coal, gas, because actually there's huge death tolls from these things. And that's without factoring things like what happens when there's an oil spill and it kills all the wildlife. So in my mind, there's no um, question here that it's still better to use nuclear than these fossil fuels, which actually, in a way, we've gotten used to them having this toll. Air pollution from fossil fuels alone kills at least 8 million people a year. These are the poorest people living in some of the most polluted regions and people that have to live near these coal-fired power stations. How many people from nuclear accidents altogether? Less than a million. The other side of the Fukushima is, say, zero people died, but hundreds of thousands were displaced and many homes were abandoned. And in terms of the economic cost of the contamination, pushing people out of homes and the nuclear site management. I mean, I, I imagine the, the cost argument for nuclear, the Fukushima plant is looking very bad. The same thing, it's an issue with coal, right? Except the only difference is they're in poorer countries where people just have to live near those things. Look, look at Nord Stream. People are being kicked off of their land. When you put in these gas pipelines, I've been there. I've been, when I was protesting tar sands, it's because they were kicking indigenous people off their land in Canada so that they could put in these pipelines. There is always a cost of displacement. It sucks. I wish it wasn't true, but we need energy to live. We need hospitals. We need heating. We need these things. Traditionally, people have only been lifted out of poverty through energy, basically. It's an energy poverty they live in. They get access to energy. It helps them to build infrastructure. They get access to education and jobs and healthcare. And then they have a high quality of life. That's what we had for a long time. And we're very lucky to have had that because we're energy rich. But 2 billion people still live in poverty. A lot of people are energy poor. And yes, there is a cost of displacement. Again, the reason I've landed at nuclear is because it has such a low impact on the land. It's very compact. And you can look at direct comparisons of how big a solar wind turbine farm needs to be compared with one little nuclear power station. And then just remember that power station chugs along on its own and it doesn't need fossil fuels as a backup. It's displacing the fossil fuels. Yeah, you could still say this costs if there's a disaster. That should, but that should always happen. What's happened with the number of oil spills? People evacuated. I mean, it washes up on people's shores. It ruins fishing communities' lives. The only difference is we don't hear about this stuff because it's poor communities. That's it. But I, I always say with Fukushima, you only need to look to Japan because what happened in Japan after Fukushima is they had a big reaction. They shut down the reactors. People were afraid of them. And years later, after experiencing blackouts because of grid issues, they started building more. Their own energy minister has said this very openly and public opinion has shifted because people have realized what it's like not to live with the energy. More deaths happen from the blackouts than happen from nuclear accidents. But you do have to look at it as a bigger picture. And the comparison is always fossil fuels. But also there's an issue with mining. People are always displaced for mining and all energy requires mining. People often say to me, what about uranium mining? You're right. People have to mine for uranium. It's not ideal. But people also mine for lithium, for electric vehicles, for solar panel batteries. There's lots of cases of people being displaced from their land. I don't want it to happen. If it's going to happen, let's use the most energy dense source so that it doesn't happen too much, so that a little bit can go a long way on a little bit of land. And that still lands at nuclear. So I guess another unique risk of nuclear power is that of nuclear weapons proliferation. 
if every country in the world had many nuclear reactors, they would all have the capacity to develop nuclear weapons. Is this something you worry about? How can that be managed? This is something that I used to believe that is also a myth. I've got a really good graphic on this that Emergency Reactor made, which shows you the countries that have weapons, don't have weapons, and the ones that have both energy and weapons. Actually, the best thing you could do is funnel these resources into energy because energy abundance is good. It lifts people out of poverty. Cheap, cheap energy is important for people and it combats climate change and it helps with air pollution. That seems like a no brainer to me. Why we're still investing in, in weapons is just beyond my comprehension. But they're very, very separate issues. And there's plenty of countries that have one or the other or both. There is not a connection. In fact, there was a case, the Soviet Union, when they shut down their weapons program, they reused all of that fuel in nuclear reactors for energy. This is a really good example of the best way you could use it because then it can't harm anyone. Where do you see the politics of nuclear power at the present moment? For example, in the European Union, there was recent disagreement among the member states as to whether to classify nuclear power as a green or sustainable or zero carbon. I forgot the specific term that they used, and they were divided on that roughly half and half. So I'm wondering if you could give your sense about where the politics are and specifically the sense you got at the uh, recent climate conference of parties in Scotland where you were. Basically, there is an EU taxonomy which determines what gets funded in terms of climate action and energy comes under that. And there's this big battle at the moment to get nuclear included. There are countries that have been trying to get nuclear included in the taxonomy because it realistically would be easier for them to build it. As you were saying, you know, financing is an issue. So it would be easier because it would be subsidized, same as renewable. If it doesn't make it into that model, it won't get funded. Countries will have no incentive to fund it and therefore they will just be reliant on cheap energy, which is coal, for the foreseeable future. So France and Finland and a bunch of other countries wrote this open letter saying we should include it. But then Germany wrote a letter with four other countries. I think Belgium was one of them. And they argued against it. And they said, no, we don't need it. It's not safe. Which I think is interesting coming from Germany because their emissions have been really bad since they phased out nuclear. They've had to burn more coal. Their emissions are actually some of the worst in Europe. And because it's so contentious. It's gone back and forth. A decision hasn't been made yet. The European Commission's own scientific body, the JRC, commissioned a report on it. And they looked into whether or not it is safe and whether or not it should be funded. And they concluded that it is safe. They used this principle in the EU called the do no harm principle. Even after that report came out, other countries still rejected it and said that the scientists were biased. And it's just gone on and on. And this very much played out a COP. Because you had a lot of people who are very pro talking about it. Macron at that time, President Macron choosing to say France is going to build six more EPRs. France has the cheapest electricity in Europe. Yes, they did pay the upfront cost, but that was in the 70s. They don't have to pay that cost anymore. These reactors run for 60 years or more. The rest of us are all worrying about getting gas from Putin at this point and gas hikes, gas prices, which are going to hit the average ordinary consumer. But meanwhile, you've still got Germany saying, no, we need to phase them out. Why do you think this is going on? Why do you believe that a significant share of the climate change community is resistant to, if not opposed to nuclear power? What do you think the underlying reason for this is? 
Well, this goes back a long way. And, and I have to remind you that I used to be really anti. I was young and I joined this movement and there were good people around me and they told me lots of people died at Fukushima and the water's radioactive and you just kind of believe it. And they're, they're not lying. They believe it too. Everybody just believes the same myths. I found that there was a lot of fear, especially in kind of older environmentalists who grew up around the Cold War. So there's a lot of fear of just the word nuclear, they think weapons. And once you have those fears, they become very deep seated. So even once I realized I started changing my mind. Even when I was questioning, people would get really funny with me. They'd say, why are you thinking that? Who's got to you? And I'd say, no one. I'm just asking questions about nuclear. You said this many people died. I'm looking at the data. Or I looked at it and I'm telling you because I thought you might want to know. And they'd say, no, 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 we don't want to know. And these are very like, I call them boomer environmentalists. They did lots of good for the planet in other ways. But on nuclear, they were wrong. And we're seeing the consequences of that now because we protested heavily against it and it didn't get funded and it has become laborious governments don't want to back it it has become costly i mean one of the reasons it's costly in britain is people don't want to invest in it right the products will get protested the boomers have been very loud and powerful and i've i've started saying to them now if we had made a different decision in the 70s when they were protest protesting nuclear and all of the wealthy nations had done what france did we would not have catastrophic climate change looming right now it would not have reached this level because our emissions would never have gotten that high. Do you get a sense that part of the resistance and opposition to nuclear power within the environmental community is related to social justice objectives that are deeply intertwined in the environmental movement? The idea being that aggressive climate action, if it's done via renewable energy and reduction of energy consumption, will also simultaneously work towards objectives of redistributing wealth and power in some way. Is there a sense that nuclear power might get in the way of that agenda? I've not come across this argument. I've heard a lot of arguments, but I haven't heard that one. It's a good argument, but you could have decentralized nuclear, right? That's why the Soviets loved it. Communists love it because it can be publicly owned. It can be done a different way. And I'd be interested in having those conversations. I mean, I don't like to criticize renewables too much because we do need them. But we have to be honest about it. If you want to talk about social justice, have you seen where solar panels have been traced back to being made from? From camps in China. This is really happening. It's terrible. It's that's why it's cheap. It's cheap labor. It's slave labor. So social justice issues, I don't know about that. I think it would be very hard to take any energy source and calculate it because you'd have to look at mining, construction, materials, how it's imported, how the grid's set up. You'd have to look at so many things. Frankly, I don't think any of them are perfect. I don't think there's any solution that isn't going to do more harm to the planet. But I think right now we have a big looming issue and that is the issue that we have to solve. That is the issue. And along the way, definitely, let's not displace people from land. But if you still look at the history of what's happened with fossil fuels, it's fossil fuels that have done that more than anyone. You're advocating for an advanced technology to help resolve or at least help manage an environmental problem in a way that could go hand in hand with economic development in poor countries. And that brings to mind a, a way of thinking about environmental problems that's sometimes called eco-modernism. How do you feel about the term and the concept or the philosophy behind eco-modernism? 
Well, you know, I only heard about it a couple of years ago when I started advocating for nuclear. I really come from a different background where I'd never heard that term before. So I thought it was interesting at first. I read the manifesto. I've met a lot of the people that wrote that manifesto now. I feel that it's quite technology heavy and I'm not, I don't use it to identify myself. I think there's lots of things in there that I don't quite agree with. You know, maybe it needs a new term, to be honest. Um, not quite eco-modernist, something else. But the bit where I differ is that application of technology if it's for the good if it's helping people and I think we've gotten a bit confused in the green movement about how we think about technology you know I was saying to someone the other day you know my glasses are technology I wouldn't be able to see without them I'm blind as a mole thank goodness we have these because I would not be able to do anything in the world I have really poor eyesight but um also fire is a technology what happened to humans before we had fire we lived in the literal dark we didn't have a way to ward off predators fires would happen naturally because there'd be a lightning strike or something and at some point our ancestors went hey we could maybe use this and they would and they realized wards off predators then at some point someone said can we cook on this and they started cooking food and our brains grew bigger our heads physically grew bigger because we got calorie dense food we never had that before we were desperate our children were hungry it was hard to get food this technology which could burn us which could be very very dangerous and i'm sure there were plenty of naysayers who said don't touch fire it's bad it could hurt you the ones that drove human progress were the ones that were like but my baby's not hungry anymore but that predator's not coming over anymore it's warm and no one now says, don't use fire, fire's bad. Just we recognize that it has risk. Everything has a risk. Nothing is zero risk. And trying to make nuclear zero risk has made it slow to build. It's The safety regulations are so complicated in the UK that it takes 15 years to knock them out. But right now, we've got fire right here. We've got a gift to humanity and we're refusing to use it because we're afraid that we might get burned. But guess what? If we don't use it, we're screwed anyway. You've got to make that risk assessment. I have made this case to environmentalists because the notion of glasses or cup that you drink from or fire as being technology doesn't enter their head. They think of technology as like, I don't know, robots and AI. And I'm kind of saying, no, it's not. It's always driven human progress. I don't even know if that eco-modernism term is correct because it's using very specific ideas of technology Whereas actually, it's all tech. We are only communicating because of tech. Should we get rid of it? How come this tech is okay? Well, some people think it isn't. Some people here where I live are protesting 5G. They don't want it to go up. I live a little bit out in the sticks. We need good internet. We're not going to get it if they keep protesting it. So I wouldn't say I'm just completely pro all tech and it's all good. It's all about how you use it. But we have to reconsider this idea of what's natural and normal. And, you know, what's natural? Natural is living on the land. Well, you know what? When we lived on the land, we used fire. Fire was the first technology. Maybe 20 years ago or so, a lot of the thinking that is currently labeled as eco-modernism was sometimes called bright green environmentalism, a sort of optimistic vision that embraced technology to overcome humans' problems. And that, at the time, was contrasted with dark green environmentalism, which has sort of a pessimistic view of humans, of the, of the human trajectory, and that at best, in order for the human race to survive, we must contract in our numbers and in our consumption. These terms never really caught on, but I do think that it captures a spectrum within the environmental community. Do you get the sense that there's a wing of environmentalism 
that has strains that could be perhaps antinatalist. You became a parent, and I read some of your book about green parenting, and you address this a little bit about population growth and the decisions about having kids. Does this wing of environmentalism that might resist human population growth through having kids, or perhaps even might be misanthropic, a sort of dislike for human race, do you get that sense? And if so, what's your reaction to that, that contrasting wing of environmentalism? I have spent a lot of time with those people. I've spent a lot of time. I've lived out in communes, middle of nowhere with these people with their solar panels. I know about the, I think it's the deep green movement they now identify as. There's loads of Facebook pages dedicated. I was in where they talk about how they're going to live through the apocalypse. They believe apocalypse is happening. They wouldn't say humans deserved, although some of them have personally said to me humans deserve to die out. They don't tend to say them in the groups, but there's always the hint of that. It's Malthusianism. And actually, when I was in Extinction Rebellion, one of our most prominent spokespeople is a Malthusian, like openly. And there was huge issues in the group because some people really agreed with that. And a lot of us didn't. To be fair, a lot of us didn't. He did end up stepping down after I'd left. But he would talk constantly about people being the problem, not far off from like people are the virus, people are the cancer. He might have actually said people are the virus. And constantly pointing at this uh, idea of overpopulations. It's always those brown people over there. You actually look at those families. You look at a family of 10. Yeah, okay, there's a lot of people there, but their carbon footprint is lower than the average Westerners. So it's completely wrong. But it has kind of seeped in, I think, into environmentalism generally, where it's like humans are, are to blame. Now, look, humans are to blame. First of all, we burned lots of fossil fuels, but we didn't do that because we went, hey, let's destroy the only habitable planet in the universe. That'll be fun for us and our children. That's not what we did. We wanted to lift people out of poverty and we did it. Look at what has happened across time. Amazing things. Hans Roslin is really good for this. He's passed away now, but he's done really good TED Talks and infographics on how we've lifted people out of poverty through this economic development. It came at a price, definitely, but we didn't know that price for a long time. And it has led us to have longer lives, healthier lives, a good quality of life, children that are likely to live past a year. Sure, there are consequences and we've realised the consequences and we've been slow to act, but the solutions are complicated. And I also think it doesn't make sense because humans are part of nature. If you're protecting the world, you're protecting humans, surely. You can't separate them and take the social justice aspect out, which is why I talk about poverty a lot, because those people are suffering because of us and they want a high quality of life. And they don't just want fridges and lighting. They also want laptops and phones. We had them. Why do we get to tell them that they can't have them? We have to be honest about this. We should be finding more sustainable ways to do all of it. But unfortunately, that's not where the conversation is. The conversation has got stuck in this, we shouldn't do it. We've been saying it for decades and it changes nothing. And the deep green people can go and live in their off-grid villages and have very low emissions. The, the reality is most people are not going to live like that. They don't want to live like that. And the people who are forced to live like that because they live in poverty, they desperately, desperately don't want to live like that to the extent that my parents migrated here from a little rural village in the Punjab, which is very poor, left the entire culture, entire family behind and got on a boat to come here because they were offered jobs and they left everything behind in order to escape that poverty so that their kids could have a high quality of life. So there's, there's bad in there, but there's good in there too. Another area of 
growing pessimism is around the prospects for climate change. And I've seen some surveys of young people where the number of people who think that either they personally or their lives are in danger or that humanity might go extinct due to climate change is growing. I mean, you were part of Extinction Rebellion, which I'm not sure exactly where the position is on how dangerous climate change is. But how do you feel about the potential for this threat of climate change to be exaggerated or that fear to lead to an action? So I was very vocal about this when I left Extinction Rebellion because, you know, I was asked a lot about my reasons. And one of the things I said was that I thought they were depressing people too much and scaring people. And those are not good motivators for change anyway. They then released a statement that didn't call me a denier, but almost did. And I think it's become like this now. You're either an alarmist or a denier. That's kind of dangerous. There is a huge problem, but it's not an insurmountable problem. Bad things are going to happen. Bad things are already happening. The global south, especially our children are probably going to be okay. Our children are fairly well protected. I've been told, no, there weren't. There'd be riots for food. You can fantasize all you like, but actually there's quite a lot of stability here that these other countries don't have. And even political stability, you might not like the politics, but there is a stability there that, for example, Afghanistan doesn't have. If societal collapse is coming, it's going to be those countries that it hits. But also there's no real, real data that says that humans will go extinct. Activist groups do this, gets attention. It's about shifting the Overton window. You say the most extreme things so that shift where it's acceptable for the debate can be. And that because they got climate change on the agenda. But I think continuing to push it and especially scaring children, which some of their speakers have done, they have deliberately gone out and told children, you know, you've got no future. It's just wrong. They're pushing for political change. That doesn't sound like you think we're going extinct. So I think there's just a lot of poorly thought out ideas. And unfortunately, they're very predominant ideas. And because there's not a lot to combat that in the environmental movement, it's always been like this. And it's always been anti-nuclear and I'm trying to help change that. It also tends to be very anti-people in some ways, tends to not consider poverty and poor people, which I think should be right at the top of the agenda. And it's kind of like a self-flagellation I saw a lot of that in the Extinction Rebellion. I feel guilty for having a good quality of life. when I really think there's a disconnection there from understanding the reason that we caused climate change was so that we didn't have to live in poverty, so that our children would have better lives. And if you go to these other countries, all of my relatives have got left behind in the Punjab, tiny little village in the Punjab, no electricity. Let me give you an example. I've got a cousin there, he's about my age. And when he was born, he had fits. But my cousin didn't have the medication. So my parents sent money over. My parents are living in Britain now. They're pretty well off in terms of Indian money. They sent money over. They didn't have access to the medication. They live four hours from the nearest hospital. There's no train. They don't have cars. They can't drive. This is the reality. These are the people that are suffering, not our children. My cousin, he's now my age and he's completely crippled and he sits in a chair all day and has 24-hour care from his family members. And that is his life. That is the life that we escaped so that our children could have better lives. And now we're telling them that they have terrible lives. I think they've forgotten what it means to not have all the things we are so lucky to have. That I'm grateful every day that my children have. I'm grateful every day when it's dark outside and I can put on the light. We have to stop telling our children that they live those kind of lifestyles when we are extremely privileged and also in a position to fix 
what's happening for the sake of those people that actually do live in fear. This is the problem, right? Western environmentalism has always been very middle class. And I say this as someone from a very working class background, very white. And I say this as a woman of color. And it has led to these laser point focuses of very privileged positions that have ignored the plight of people all around the world. And now I've got these people saying, your children are going to live in apocalypse. Two billion people live in poverty today. That is already a kind of apocalypse, right? We have to change the conversation. We have to have these conversations. I guess a final question. Uh, what gives you hope? My children, my community, the number of people that are standing up for science. And I think that's what it comes down to. I don't think of it so much as tech. I think of it more as science. Right? What is science telling us we need to do? If it's this, I don't care if it's spinach. If it's spinach that's going to get us out of this, I'll advocate for spinach. It's, I've landed on nuclear. But I look at my kids. We're doing all right. We don't live in poverty. They've got a good science grounding already. They completely understand the solutions. My group, Emergency Reactor, work with young people all the time. They completely get it. Completely. There's a real difference between the kind of boomer environmentalists and the young people because the young people are worried so they desperately want solutions and they don't want to be depressed they want to have a good life but they're worried um, and they and they also care more than i've ever seen before about global justice so they care about stuff like poverty but it fills me with hope because at some point they're going to be the ceos and the politicians and they'll make better decisions i just hope that before they get to that stage we can clear up as much of the mess as possible because it really shouldn't be on them but i think if we pull together i think it is completely achievable well zion uh, thanks for joining us where can people find uh, more of your stuff i have a website it's emergencyreactor.org we're on all the social media pages i have a personal website zionlights.co.uk get in touch if you want to help with emergency reactor we do fun events staged a wedding at cop between nuclear and renewables have a look at the videos on youtube we do lots of fun stuff if you want to get involved we are all about positive climate action it's realistic and it's evidence-based but it is also positive and thanks for having me thanks for listening to challenging climate our music is by peter daltruck and our website is challengingclimate.org where you can find the show notes for this episode, including all the relevant links and references. If you enjoy this episode, please consider sharing it on social media to help us grow this podcast.